Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Eric. Today, we have our first guest on the podcast, Mark Maurer from the Sentencing Project. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Hi, it's good to be here. Thanks. So a couple episodes ago, we talked about this South Carolina study by David Hughes called The Economic Impact of Sentencing Reform of the Sentencing Reform Act initiatives on the South Carolina economy. And we talked about how uh, keeping people out of prison can often result in a huge positive gain that is hard to measure unless you actually go and, and follow up with, with people and do that economic math. And uh, I was wondering, Mark, um, what's your opinion of that, of that study? Does it make sense? And uh, are there any flaws that you see? Yeah. Well, for start, it's an intriguing study and I think an important study. Uh, you know, people often look at prisons and try to figure out what are the cost benefits of prisons and in terms of public safety issues. Uh, we probably have less information available about community alternative diversion programs and the like, and partly because it's difficult to, to study those things and partly because the resources just haven't been put into it. So this study is intriguing. I should say from the start, uh, some of the uh, mathematical uh, computations are beyond my expertise, so I, I don't mean to comment on those, but just looking at the findings, uh, you know, the authors, you know, have come up with a fairly substantial cost benefits uh, for the taxpayers of South Carolina. Uh, one item concerns me a little bit in, in their conclusions uh, is that most of the uh, purported savings seem to come from reduced prison population uh, and reduced cost of incarceration. Uh, most states, you know, we assume it's $30,000 a year, give or take, to keep a person in prison. So in their study, most years, at least two-thirds of the savings uh, are projected to come from that. Uh, the, the problem with that is that just because the prison population declines by one person or 100 people or some other figure doesn't mean that you're saving real money for the most part uh, because of the fixed cost of incarceration. You know, it's a very valid point. It's, it seems to me that the study makes a mistake that we've talked about, uh, Mark, relative to uh, some of the work done under justice reinvestment, where they confuse the issue of uh, cost avoidance with cost savings. And in this case, it's 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 almost a, a way to describe this would be what would it have cost for these particular people to have been in prison so that there's a value, a cost of value to that, not a cost savings. And so the argument would be that it certainly didn't reduce the prison population at all, prison spending at all. Uh, but nonetheless, the prison system could concentrate on people who are much more serious, more violent, et cetera. And so I think semantics plays a very important role here. And if the researchers, uh, much like we had recommended to uh, Pew Charitable Trust Center for the States, to be very clear about the difference between savings, cost avoidance, and just dollar value. Uh, so that, that might help this a bit. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there, you know, the real savings, uh, one person is diverted from prison, well, that person's not eating food in the cafeteria, that person's not uh, using medical services and other things like that. But given that two-thirds or so of the cost of running a prison are for staffing, primarily guards and then salaries of administrators, um, you know, unless you actually reduce those costs substantially, and the only way that happens is closing 
a full prison or at least a wing of a prison, uh, that's where the cost savings come in. So the marginal costs don't add up to very much unless you're taking on a pretty substantial cut and willing to make the reductions uh, in staffing in particular that would bring in uh, those additional resources. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the marginal cost, particularly uh, relative to South Carolina, because when I was there uh, off and on for a few years and testified to the legislature, you remember uh, Senator Malloy, who uh, we just love to work with, such a passionate uh, advocate for this type of work. And he sat as one of the co-chairs, I believe, of the committee overseeing this work. And they uh, ended up putting into the law to calculate those marginal costs um, and that those uh, savings, so-called savings, could then be uh, set aside for different purposes, except that they didn't have to set them aside. It was up to the legislature, and they never did. Uh-huh. It's, and so not only were the the savings far, far, far less than what uh, Pew had calculated, because they did end up realizing that the fact was the marginal cost, which is only six to eight bucks a day for clothing, food, et cetera, as you mentioned. But then even at that, they didn't uh, reinvest the dollars. And as we know, uh, as we um, mentioned, I think, in our five-state report of states that have achieved double-digit reduction in uh, ongoing uh, prison population reduction, South Carolina ended up, as you would expect, having a more dangerous population because so many uh, nonviolent people were so-called diverted. And then they did not improve the staffing. Uh, the quality of the uh, correctional supervision, and they ended up having a riot, and, and there were people killed. So it's it's pretty important stuff, isn't it? Yeah, no, it certainly is. Um, you know, another issue too, uh, and we we see this all over for a long time, is um, you know what is what do we mean by diversion from the prison system? And uh, you know, I don't pretend to have a good day to day feel for the South Carolina initiatives, but. Uh, you know, long history in the field of talking about net widening and how do you measure what a true diversion is. So uh, that's a tricky thing to do, of course. Um, you know, and there are some programs, initiatives, different places that try to get a good handle on it. But you know, unless we could dig down pretty deep on what those dynamics look like, uh, we don't know always uh, how many. Just because 100 people have gone through a program doesn't mean they all would have gone to prison in the absence of the program. Yeah, that's that is such a, a valid point. You know, uh, back in Michigan when the uh, Community Corrections Act passed, it put a premium on diversion programs, and we created a bit of an algorithm to predict when someone had something greater than a 50% chance of going to prison. In other words, at a 51% likelihood that they would have gone to prison. And the reason that we had to keep it so close to the 50% mark was that if they qualified as a substantiated diversion, they were eligible to be uh, paid for uh, to the sheriffs who put them up in jail supposedly rather than sending them to prison and the politics of it dictated that while i started a formula that said you know we need to have about a 75 or 80 percent likelihood of, of them going to prison so we're more or less certain than they would the po- politics of it moved us in the other direction so we had a formula that showed they were 51 percent. so when we did our reporting and our analyses we could say if we have 100 people in the program, then the likelihood is that 51 of them were diverted. And Hugh's study did not uh, do that. And both on the marginal cost issue, which they could have done, and on this issue, they could have uh, he could have recalculated these because the savings was $50 million over so many years. Mm-hmm. You know, what if that reduced it down to only 
$15 million. I mean, it's still a boatload of money. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. You know, one program comes to mind uh, in New York City, uh, originally in Brooklyn from the district attorney's office. It was the drug treatment alternative to prison that was started by uh, former district attorney Joe Hines when he was in office. And um, the way they tried to deal with this issue was uh, only taking drug cases, drug selling cases, essentially where there was a mandatory penalty of imprisonment that would have been applied upon conviction. So they use that as their measuring stick, essentially, to identify prison-bound cases. They believe that uh, by offering the alternative to that group of people, they had a fairly high level of confidence this was a true diversion. And, you know, that program as well, unlike so many others, uh, was subject to pretty rigorous evaluation. The Vera Institute did a number of evaluations over the years uh, and essentially found, you know, good diversion happening, uh, better outcomes, not perfect, but better outcomes for people going through the program in terms of either reduced drug use and or reduced subsequent arrests and convictions, too. So there are ways of getting at these issues, but yeah. uh, it does take some real focused attention. Well, you know, it's it's great you mentioned that because that uh, program uh, began uh, experimenting uh, back when I worked for the Office of Community Corrections in Michigan. We were just starting to tackle this issue, and I was so taken by the Vera Institute of Justice's uh, influence on an interaction with, with Prosecutor Hines, because the other way that they tracked it was they looked at the actual number of sentences to prison and whether or not those sentences were dropping as a, a fairly pure uh, measure, although one could argue that there's fluctuations any given month anyway, up or down. But what they did in their process evaluation, which I'm not sure was published in, in so long ago, I, I know that I had these notes, was that they kept tightening up the criteria until they started to see those actual prison sentences go down. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a fascinating interaction, which we often don't see, between the science of doing the work and the practice of doing the work. And these difficult-to-control issues where a prosecutor in charge of charging cannot control a judge who's in charge of sentencing, and there's an awful lot of variables, but because of their dedication to the science of it in a practical way, uh, they ended up eventually getting the impact that they wanted. And it stands as one of the uh, benchmarks, I think, in the history of uh, reform uh, that uh, responded to, you recall, Alan Harlan and Kay Harris's uh, early article, The Unmet Promise of Alternatives to Incarceration, where they laid this stuff out there so very clearly. And it was clear that certainly Vera and, and Hines, for that matter, had, took that into heart. So exactly. um, it, it can be done. These things can be improved. It can be. You know, and they're also, uh, you know, if we look at the range of alternatives, you know, probably drug court is the most prominent these days and some 3,000 drug courts of one form or another around the country. Um, you know, research by uh, academics like Peter Reuter at University of Maryland, who studied these issues for a long time, um, he unfortunately is very skeptical that most drug courts are truly diverting people from incarceration and primarily because of the criteria for admission into the drug court. So, you know, in some drug courts, uh, you know, marijuana uh, arrests qualify for admission or they're limited to first time drug arrests. and you know, these are well-intended programs, well-intended judges and practitioners who believe that treatment is a better option than incarceration. Uh, but if you look at the, the cases, if you look at traditional patterns of sensing these jurisdictions, uh, in too many cases, uh, these are not people who would otherwise go to prison. So we could debate whether the treatment is a worthwhile thing to do, but we shouldn't 
pretend that it's reducing prison populations uh, in those programs. Yeah, and the, you hear the argument in the communities and the judges, of course, who are uh, rather difficult to disagree with when you're in front of them and they're in their full uh, wardrobe, uh, you know, on the bench and um, say, well, you know, they might not have gone to prison this time, but because we're reducing their future criminality, then, you know, they're likely to have gone to prison maybe two or three times up the road. And, you know, and, and my response to that is, that's fine. Call it that. Say that. Mm-hmm. Don't right. call it a diversion program. Call it a treatment program. And, 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 and don't have your literature talk about the cost of imprisonment, et cetera. So I think, you know, to, to, the, to the point you're making about the David Hughes study, it really gets, in a lot of respects, down to semantics. I mean, these things are, they've got some, uh, some positive uh, impact. Let's not overblow it. Let's not call it something that it isn't, and let's be uh, much more scientific, I think, about trying to get uh, at, at some good numbers. Yeah, no, I think that absolutely makes sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a, like we like we mentioned on, I guess, episode 13, it, uh, it's a shame that there aren't more such studies, so we can draw, we get more data points and actually draw a line to see if uh, these sort of policies are effective across the board, or if it was just a one-time situation in South Carolina. Right, right, exactly. Well, we could we could talk with David Hughes, which we've tentatively made plans to do to get a handle on his methodology, because as we both said, uh, Mark and I have said that we need to take a look at that because he can change the analyses and redo the study and come up with uh, similar results, but probably cut those savings quite a bit. The other point I think you had made, Mark, uh, in some earlier communication we had about the uh, factors of uh, employment and how many of them were employed and how that was calculated. What, what was uh, what was your, your thinking on that? Yeah, well, the, the numbers I see in the study um, seem to live on the high side to me that, uh, you know, they, he found that uh, about half of the people who were employed uh, were making between fifteen and $25,000 a year. Now, for most of us who are working full-time, that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but for people coming out of prison, um, that feels like it's on the high end for what many people are going through. For a start, you know, most people in prison don't have uh, lengthy uh, histories of successful employment or lengthy educational uh, credentials, so they're often in the minimum wage, low wage labor markets. Uh, they're often employed only part-time or part of the year. Uh, so it does make it difficult to get up even to that very modest fifteen dollars to $25,000 range. Now, I'm sure uh, the numbers he's got seem real and all, but it would be interesting to look a little deeper into that. Uh, also, I don't note in the study what proportion of people going through the program actually are employed. And, you know, that's another critical piece. Uh, if 90% are employed and these are their average salaries, that's one thing. If 15% are employed, um, what's happening to the rest of the population there? So, you know, I think we'd want to know more about that and what that experience looks like all around. Yeah, and whether they're employed at some point in time, what I've tried to encourage programs to measure is not simply in, uh, the status of employment, but the length of employment so that over the course of six months, nine months, a year, what of those months, how many people were employed for an average length of time? I'm, I'm never unemployed for longer than a couple of weeks or a month, but these men and women often uh, may experience a longer uh, time than that. And it's possible in the methodology to do a uh, actual cross-reference with the uh, taxes that are paid by these uh, men and women through Department of 
uh, labor and, and things of that nature, and the methodology uh, becomes more expensive. But it, my guess would be Hughes was probably estimating it, which is a reasonable way to go if you're just trying to do those estimates. But again, you've, you've got to be uh, clearer. Uh, clearer, I think, about what it is and what it ain't. Um, but certainly the issue of uh, cost of incarceration has uh, been on, in, in your mind as you've uh, written some of the most uh, fascinating uh, books of our time, I think, but largely focusing on uh, racial disparity. And uh, I know you've thought a lot about this. Mark, you've, you've written a bunch of books about uh, racial disparity, and we've talked about it on that topic on several of our episodes so far. What does the future look like? Are we getting better at that, or is it... Is it staying the same or getting worse, or uh, does it depend on the state? Yeah, well, it's uh, you know it's a long history we're looking at, and the the impact is still with us today. It takes different forms in different places. Uh, you know, for start, uh, we're starting to see some reductions in prison populations in the last uh, eight or nine years. Um, these are relatively modest across the country in most states, although a handful of states have reduced their prison population by 25, 30, or even 35%. Um, you know, as states are trying to reduce these numbers, uh, we think it's very important they also look at the uh, racial disparities in incarceration and make concerted efforts to try to reduce those disparities as well. Uh, and what we've seen so far is that there's not much progress in that regard. Now, it's a mixed, mixed message in many ways. Uh, if you take a state uh, like Connecticut or New Jersey, which have reduced their numbers overall by 30% or a little more, um, that's very encouraging. So it means that there's far fewer whites, blacks, Latinos, and other racial and ethnic groups that are incarcerated. And I think that's a benefit for themselves and their communities. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, disparities, black, white incarceration, anywhere from 5 to 1 to 12 to 1, depending on the state still persists. So, you know, we need to break down what's going on there, what's driving these numbers, why has it been so difficult to try to reduce it. Um, the good news is uh, I think there is more focused attention on these issues now. Uh, some of this comes about from concerned legislators and corrections officials. Some of it is from the ground up, from the Black Lives Matter movement and similar groups around the country. Uh, so there's trying to be some attention to this, but uh, you know we're not seeing dramatic results in very many jurisdictions so far. You did uh, spearhead, I know, in several states, um, a requirement that the legislature uh, would not only uh, perhaps indicate the projected uh, cost impact of, the, of new laws that they, they just love to pass by the score, but also the impact on racial disparity. How much luck did you have in, in some places getting that particular piece of legislative analysis required in uh, bill analyses? Yeah, well, it's, it's been encouraging in, in many respects. Uh, the first state to pass such a policy, a racial impact statement, was Iowa in 2008, and Connecticut followed that same year. Uh, since then, Oregon has passed policy in New Jersey just two years ago. Uh, Minnesota d didn't do it legislatively, but does it through their Sentencing Guidelines Commission. Uh, and just this year, the, in Florida, a proposal through the legislature has been adopted to make this happen happen as well. Uh, this, so this is encouraging that there is this expressed concern. Uh, we just want to be clear about its limitations. You know, this is not 
a look back at all the sentencing laws on the books or incarceration patterns that exist, things like that. It's prospective only, and that's uh, nothing, uh, that's something to be proud of, but it's only for new legislation. And the idea is just as we do environmental impact uh, studies when we're doing building dams and doing other uh, work projects uh, to try to anticipate any uh, unlikely or unknown impacts on, on wildlife and such. Uh, here too, you may have a well-intended sensing policy, but uh, it can be demonstrated to produce uh, very disparate racial effects. So it gives legislators an opportunity to try to address the public safety issue without exacerbating the problem of racial disparity. And I think yeah. that's a good first step in this process. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinarily um, positive, I think. Before we uh, switch to your latest book, The Meaning of Life, one other uh, comment, a question really uh, for you to respond to. We, in a couple of episodes, as Eric discussed, we uh, often look at uh, how to fix stuff and look at the science of implementation, which is often the place where things fall apart. You might have a, a well-meaning law, you might have a well-meaning corrections director, well-meaning governor, and they may change policy, but it's implemented so poorly uh, that it doesn't have the uh, uh, intended uh, impact. And one topic we discussed relative to racial disparity was the manuscript that the sentencing project produced some years ago that I helped uh, with and Jerry uh, McElroy and a couple of others um, on how to reduce racial disparity in the criminal justice system. And I always found it to be one of the most helpful practical guides on how a system can not only measure the degree of impact of racial disparity at each point in the system, but what they can do by way of policy and procedure to reverse it. And I don't recall uh, any jurisdiction, and maybe there are some, who took advantage of that, even though we offered, and I continue to, to mention it, as you know, technical assistance to implement a work group to look at those uh, guide guidelines that uh, we published and to actually try to to re reduce the disparity, have we ever had any takers? And and to whatever degree we have or haven't, what's your what's your your reading on that? Yeah, well, I think there's been some at least modest efforts uh, to do some of those uh, programming works. Uh, you know, I've been invited to uh, typically just the one session at an annual conference of probation and parole officers or, or groups like that or so. Uh, there's other efforts in the field. The American Bar Association for a number of years had a program of providing technical assistance to generally a half dozen jurisdictions at a time focused on identifying a problem point of racial disparity and bringing the stakeholders together to address it. Uh, in the juvenile justice system, um, James Bell out of San Francisco and uh, his organization uh, have been working with jurisdictions also to take that on. Uh, you know, my take on this uh, is that I think there are many practitioners who are sincerely concerned about the racial ethnic disparities that they see every day, uh, but I think they feel a little bit helpless to uh, know what it is that they can do. Uh, they you know, typically will say, well, it's the fault of the practitioner just before me. So the prosecutor will see disparities and arrests and blame it on the police, and the judge will see prosecutorial charging policies and, and on down the line like that. So the challenge is how do you 
uh, work with practitioners to say you can't fix this whole problem, but you can look at what you're doing in the system, how you use discretion, how you allocate resources, how you look at data, uh, and if you can reduce disparities at your stage by let's say five or ten percent, that's a good start. And if every uh, every sector of the justice system start to take that on jurisdiction, you know, we could see some real progress then. Well, that's promising. I, I, I did not know that there's been that uh, level of interest. You know, one of the uh, elements of the work we did, obviously, was to create a racial disparity index. And in the test cases that we uh, developed, we saw a small amount of racial disparity at every step of the system. Um, rather than one particular step of the system being particularly uh, responsible for it. And that seems, uh, if you can get them together and they can examine that and realize, oh, well, we're all responsible to about the same level, then that might, uh, of course, if it's true, then that might, uh, you know, really help uh, grease the wheels to, to change things a bit. Yeah, and it's also the case, you know, there are some states that have set up commissions to look at racial disparities in the justice system. In some cases, produce very good reports, uh, but as we spoke before, then the implementation uh, is often lagging in trying to make this real and trying to engage the practitioners on a day-to-day -day basis on that. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, switch a bit and uh, talk about your uh, latest uh, uh, book, uh, The Meaning of Life. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, Eric, you took a quick look at uh, some of that stuff, uh, did you not? Yeah, a little bit. Um, you co-wrote that with Ashley Nellis, I believe. Right. Um, and for sure, there will be a link in our in our episode show notes to that book. It's, I assume it, it's addressing life sentences and how totally giving up on someone and locking them away for forever, effectively, is bad, probably, I mean, for sure, for the, for the prisoners, but potentially also for the economy and the whole uh, justice system in general. Yeah, well, you know, the, the argument make is on several layers, but for a start, uh, you know, we have momentum now to challenge an end mass incarceration. It's growing. It's bipartisan. All that is very encouraging. Uh, much of the attention, though, uh, is still focused on lower level offenses and criminal history. So there's lots of interest in diverting people convicted of low-level drug sales or possession out of the system, and that's fine and all that. Um, that's not going to end mass incarceration in itself, because if we look around the prison system broadly, about half the people currently in prison are serving time for a violent offense, uh, serious violent offense in most cases. Uh, now, knowing that, that's not the end of the story, but because if they're going to be incarcerated, there's still a question of for how long should they be in prison and what are the purposes of long-term incarceration. So today, one of every seven people in prison is serving some type of life sentence. So that's wow. why 200,000 people, to put some perspective on that, there are more people serving life now than the entire prison population back in 1970. That's the scale of what we look at. Uh, there are many reasons why it's ineffective. One of the most substantial ones is what we've known in criminology for a very long time, that crime is a young man's game and increasingly a young woman's game, that young males between the ages of 15 to 24 in particular have a much higher risk of involvement in crime. Those that risk rises pretty quickly in the late teen years, early 20s, but it also starts to decline pretty rapidly by the late 20s and 30s. So we take someone convicted of an armed robbery at the age of 25, and if uh, he gets a life sentence, 
by the time he's 35, 40, 45, in most cases is much less of a public safety risk than that 25-year-old was. He, you know, he matures while he's in prison, just like all 25-year-olds mature. Mm -hmm. So we then get diminishing returns for public safety as each succeeding year in prison provides less incapacitating effect, and it comes at greater and greater cost because of aging in prison and the healthcare costs that come along with that. So it's both on a human term in terms of human potential to change, but also uh, in terms of public safety resources, it's very counterproductive at the scale at which we're doing it today in the United States. Mark, you know, the the your book tour took you uh, to Louisiana, I believe that you visited uh, Angola uh, prison when you were there, which of course has got a very large lifer population. And I wanted to ask you, you know, the state of Louisiana is uh, up at, uh, one of the few states, and you, maybe you know more about this, that don't require a unanimous uh, decision by a jury of 12 to convict for life. They only require 10. Uh, do you see that other places? Did you uh, look into that at all when you were in Louisiana? Yeah. Well, to be fair, I, that finally just changed in a ballot initiative uh, last November, but it's been the case for forever, basically. I believe Oregon is the only other state that has maintained a requirement like that. And there are some uh, truly very disturbing cases in Louisiana where uh, you have a, an African-American man on trial uh, for murder that's going to lead to a sense of life without parole, and the jury came back 10 to 2. Ten white jurors voted to convict, the two African-American jurors voted to acquit. Um, so whether or not this was racially intended, and I believe it was, given the history of this policy, uh, it's you know one very substantial way uh, in which the system, in very conscious ways, I think, uh, has really um, served to increase the numbers of African-American uh, prisoners, and in this case, serving life without parole in Louisiana. And so you 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 uh, believe that the original intent of that uh, allowance of a, only ten convictions was in fact racially motivated. Yeah, the the documentation is pretty clear that that was the intent back then. Interesting. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, what were your impressions of Angola? Well, uh, my first time there after many decades of working in this, in this field, and it, it is unique as you drive around. You know this old plantation, um, you know, it's very sobering as it is in any prison, but, um, you know, we were able to, after we did a book talk, we were able to do a tour of the prison. We met first with uh, the uh, staff writers for the Angolite magazine, which as many people know, the leading prison magazine in the country, it won all kinds of awards for their investigative work. Uh, and here you have a group of a half a dozen men who are doing journalism, it's on a par with, you know, any high quality paper uh, outside of prisons too, and just really made a major contribution. Uh, <clears throat> we see men in the law library there, uh, when anytime you have 4,000 people serving life without parole, there's a lot of legal issues that people are trying to deal with, and you have some people in there uh, with no formal legal training, but a very sophisticated understanding of uh, what the law is and how they can try to use it. Um, you also see a very substantial building that houses death row there, and I did not choose to go through there, uh, but in Louisiana remains uh, a hotbed of still being committed to using death penalty, and, and like other states that do it, it's not the entire state, but uh, it's a handful of district attorneys in some districts that are
are the ones that overwhelmingly are bringing these cases uh, as death cases. And so you've got considerable numbers of people still on death row, even as other states are beginning to turn away from uh, the death penalty overall, or at least from numbers of, of cases scheduled to, to be executed. Mark, when you uh, were researching and then writing your book, you had a chance to talk with lifers, and they may have uh, committed their crime when they were quite young. They may have been in prison for some 20 or 30 years uh, by the time that you got to talk with them. And this issue of remorse is, is often one that's discussed, particularly in light of the adamance of many victims that um, the perpetrator of the, the murder of their loved one uh, be incarcerated for the rest of his or her life, if not uh, put to death. How do you uh, square that um, knowing and learning uh, from the prisoner's perspective, but then also understanding, you know, the, the horror and tragedy of, of losing a loved one and their uh, conviction that, that folks need to, to, to be in for the rest of their life. How do you handle that? Yeah, well, it's it's terrible, of course. And, you know, there's nothing we can do uh, to bring back the person who was killed and uh, to their loved ones who were left behind. So we need a much more robust system of compassion and support to victims than we have uh, in, in any jurisdiction right now. I think, though, we've confused uh, recognition of the victims and their suffering with the degree of punishment that's necessary or appropriate. You know, if we look at comparable nations, other industrialized countries, Western Europe, Canada, you know, people are killed in those countries. People are victims of armed robbery in those countries, too. Uh, I think a system of justice, a sentencing system, needs to be calibrated so that clearly murder will be punished more severely than robbery, which in turn be punished more severely than car theft. So you want it to be proportional so society recognizes the gravity of the crime, but it doesn't mean that you need to have the death penalty in life without parole at the top of that scale. It just means that they should be punished or responded to more so than lesser crime. So in many other democratic nations, it's very unusual, uh, either in law or in practice, to have a sentence of more than 20 years in prison. So they're saying essentially, this is a very serious crime, it's deserving of the highest form of punishment, incarceration, and so on from there. So I think uh, there are different ways to structure these systems. We, for many political and other reasons, have come to say, uh, you know, uh, it has to be the most extreme penalties we're capable of seeing, even as the death penalty in particular uh, is, you know, been uh, gone from many democratic nations for 50 years or more, and the United States lags behind in all those categories. So your 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 logic, your sentiment, and and your compassion is is clear. Um, which matters not a damn when it comes to the politics of the situation. And you and I have had many long, uh, thankfully, unrecorded conversations about politics. But when, when you're considering um, the people that are running for office and in the current presidential race, for example, we have uh, Kamala Harris, a, a former prosecutor, uh, Cory Booker, uh, also quite uh, justice involved over the years. How do, how do you, how do you uh, think... Uh, we can educate uh, people that are running for office about this. And what, what is your level of hope that we might uh, be uh, on the cusp of perhaps getting some people elected who are much more uh, thoughtful and realistic about this issue? Well, you know, we're in an interesting moment right now. Um, you know, Dennis, you and I have been doing this stuff for decades and all, and, you know, it's been a political hot potato for most of that time. And in 
far too many cases, both Democratic and Republican leaders have been united in proposing tough-on-crime policies. And really, in recent years, uh, there's increasing coalition building, liberals and conservatives alike, uh, talking about the need for reentry programming, talking about mass incarceration, the need to reduce prison populations. You know, at the federal level, Congress passed the First Step Act last year. It's a very modest shift in providing additional programming in federal prisons and scaling back some of the harsh sentencing policies. So it's modest, but it, it will make a difference, and it was bipartisan. Uh, in the current, you know, presidential campaign, uh, this is really the first time that we've seen uh, not only one, but a number of candidates essentially competing with each other. Uh, to see how much they can take on the problem of mass incarceration. You know, and again, both Democrats and Republicans in prior campaigns uh, made it clear they support the death penalty, they supported harsh prison time for what they considered the most serious offenses. Uh, and now we've got half a dozen candidates who are proposing a variety of criminal justice reforms, making a priority. Uh, just this week, Senator Booker announced uh, essentially a second look policy reform that he would promote whereby anybody serving more than 10 years in federal prison could petition for review of their case after 10 years, essentially to make the argument that they had transformed since their conviction, they were good candidates for release, and try to make their case uh, to alleviate these decades-long prison terms. So we're at a moment when the conversation is shifting, and I think uh, it's done that way because we've helped to create a political environment, all of us, uh, that makes it more comfortable for political leaders to recognize they can do the right thing, but also get reelected while they do that too. Yeah, that's that's nice. that's great to hear, and, and I'm uh, becoming more familiar with the candidates' positions. You recall, uh, you know, the Clintons, who uh, President uh, Clinton uh, was so uh, responsible for much of the escalation of the prison populations when he ran for president and tried to out conservative uh, his opponent and move the entire country into a direction which, uh, you know, skyrocketed the prison population. We see in the political spectrum that Hillary Clinton uh, changed her mind and, uh, and, and recanted uh, that. I thought that was uh, quite the moment. Uh, your thought on that? Yeah, yeah, you know, and it, um, it came 20 years too late <clears throat> to make a real difference, but that's okay. You know, some people, we'd rather hear their reflections about it. Um, Bill Clinton and Joe Biden also now acknowledge they would say, well, we went too far, but we had a serious problem. And I think there were many people at the time from the Congressional Black Caucus on Capitol Hill to many of the advocacy organizations that were saying that, you know, three strikes penalties and expansion of the death penalty and money for prison construction was, would be a failed policy option. And I think we're all uh, demonstrated to be correct in that, and now we're paying the price in this bloated prison system that we have. So, yes, it was too late in coming for some, but uh, again, the good news is that the environment has now changed, and the challenge is to, uh, to keep pushing so that whatever reforms can be produced are as broad as possible and actually make some significant inroads in, in all, all the states. Well, you mentioned uh, one way for uh, listeners or anyone for that matter to get involved uh, through these various coalitions that are, are forming, uh, often bipartisan uh, advocates. Um, do any of them stand out uh, that we would want to link to in our show notes? Can you talk a little bit about uh, those that uh, were more impressive, perhaps? 
Yeah. Well, nationally, uh, you know, the the ACLU has made a major commitment uh, to uh, ending mass incarceration through its uh, Smart Justice campaign, and their their affiliates in almost all of their states are engaged in one form or another with uh, trying to to move these issues ahead, reduce the prison population. Uh, very intriguing uh, development. Uh, the organization called Just Leadership USA, which was started just about a half dozen years ago, uh, basically uh, working with formerly incarcerated activists and doing leadership training with them uh, to uh, to put them in positions of influence too. So there's a variety of ways that uh, the organizations are approaching this. Yeah, I like I like what the ACLU has done. They, um, it, I, I think it would, I'd like to see them uh, become a little bit more aware of other efforts that are on the ground in states um, and to be more uh, collaborative with those places that are uh, on the ground. But I think as a national uh, movement, uh, they certainly are uh, uh, well-funded and increasingly so. I guess the, uh, the Trump years have been very uh, bad for the country, but very good for the ACLU's uh, pocketbook. I know that I saw some, some reports. They, they are a remarkable uh, advocacy group uh, with some incredibly intelligent and passionate uh, people. So we'll we'll uh, create some uh, linkages uh, there. Any state groups jump out at you, Mark? Any particular uh, states? Well, you know, we've been uh, working uh, very much so on the life imprisonment issues, and uh, there, there's you know, number of <clears throat> organizations that are trying to work for real change. Uh, California has a, a number there. Um, is one group called Drop LWAP, or Drop Life Without Parole, and really making the argument there that, you know, life without parole is just cruel and unusual punishment, essentially. And they and other advocates in California have been successful this year in scaling back the felony murder rule. Um, many people may be aware of this, but essentially the classic cases, two people decide they're going to go rob a drugstore. One of them is the getaway driver in the car. The other one goes into the drugstore. Things get out of hand. He's got a gun and ends up killing the drugstore owner uh, in the robbery. The police apprehend them, and the two of them are charged with murder, both the trigger man who did the killing and the getaway driver on the legal principle that he was involved in a felony that led to a murder. Uh, if you stop people on the street and ask, do you think we should punish these people exactly the same for their culpability in the crime, very few people would say that they're exactly the same. So in California, the reform now is that uh, in order to be charged with felony murder, the prosecution has to be able to demonstrate intent to kill in a situation like this, not just bad luck by being the getaway driver in the robbery. Uh, states like uh, Pennsylvania are trying to push forward second look provisions. Uh, State Senator uh, Street is leading the effort there, and the idea is after a number of years of incarceration on a life sentence, you could go before a review board, have your case reviewed, and see if you know 20 years in prison has made you a different person than the person who was sentenced on that day in the courtroom. So a very broad coalition there as well, a number of other states too. Well, your your work in this area is just remarkable and, and so very, very excellent. Um, how can folks uh, support the work at the Sentencing Project? 
Well, for start, come to our website, which is sentencingproject.org, and we also have begun a campaign around life imprisonment, and the website there is endlifeimprisonment.org. Um, you know, we are always looking to support advocacy work and practitioner-led initiatives in the states uh, through technical assistance, communication support, and the like, and people can just email us at our organizational address and we will be happy to respond and see if there's some work we can uh, do to collaboratively or so. Uh, we don't turn down financial contributions either, so we welcome any kind of support that we can get to keep the work going. But, um, you know, we try to be supportive of ongoing efforts around the country as we're able to and to help guide and, and influence some of those uh, campaigns too. Oh, good. Well, Eric and I have been trying to do our part. Uh, we've talked about the sentencing project uh, many times, many, many, many times. <laughs> Appreciate it. And uh, hope that uh, our listeners will visit your site and uh, and help you, uh, Eric. Good. Uh, yeah. Um, thank you very much for for spending some time with us, and uh, hopefully our listeners will have gained some perspective from your uh, from your point of view. And uh, maybe we can have you back on the podcast sometime. But okay. Thank, you, thank you very, Thanks very much. So much for having me. Thank you so much, Mark. It's always a pleasure. Okay, great. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've just heard, you can support us by telling a friend or sharing us on social media. All of our episodes can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at seekjusticefm at gmail.com or via our Twitter account, at seekjusticefm. See you next week.